0: Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. So welcome to Race and Democracy, and we are very excited to have with us today uh, Dr. Ed Pavlich, who is Distinguished Research Professor of English and African American Studies at the University of Georgia, and really one of the most uh, foremost um, critics and essayist, a novelist um, about the black experience in the 19th and 20th centuries. He's um, one of the world's uh, most important scholars of James Baldwin. And we're going to be talking about James Baldwin today. James Baldwin in the American South, but really, what does Baldwin uh, mean for race and democracy in the United States and globally at this critical juncture uh, in 2019. Uh, Professor Pavlich is the author of many books, uh, including Who Can Afford to Improvise? James Baldwin and Black Music, The Lyric and The Listeners. Um, And his most recent book is his novel, Another Kind of Madness. Um, Ed, welcome to Race and Democracy. it's
1: great to be here, great to see you.
0: Um, I wanna talk about James Baldwin. Um, You know, born in 1924 in Harlem, uh, really uh, becomes this uh, stratospheric uh, public intellectual with the 1963 publication of *The Fire Next Time*. The meeting with Bobby Kennedy. um, He is friends with Malcolm X and Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King Jr. But then, when we think about Baldwin in the 1970s and 80s, um, less of as as visible a figure as he had been. Uh, he passes away, really premature death when we think 63. About 63 yeah. um, in 1987. Yeah. Um, but now there's been a renaissance of Baldwin studies. You've got the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. Um, you've got Ta Nehisi Coates writes the bestseller, which is really an homage, at least the framing of Between the World and Me, which has sold maybe two million copies. Wow. Um, um, is an homage a letter to his son where fire next time was a letter to his nephew right, right? at least right, one of them right so i want you to talk about james baldwin yeah. your work with baldwin yeah. the inspiration what baldwin means
1: wow well there's a lot man and uh, again just thank you so much for 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 doing this it's it's great to be here um and always happy to talk about baldwin in any lens you know uh but as far as um, how you're approaching things, uh, there's a lot there that you already said. You know, he 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 came from a, a background that wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't have predicted he would become a kind of literary superstar and, and public intellectual, but he, he made his way. And it, it's uh, it really is an incredible story that I hate to say, even with all the attention over all these decades <clears throat> that he's had, I still feel like we know kind of very little about. We're still kind of circling around it
0: somehow um why do you think that is
1: uh, well i think I, I i think that baldwin was a rare person in that he became very very popular pretty much as popular as anybody else at the time you hear about harry Belfani or somebody like that you know he was kind of a celebrity like miles davis or or billy d williams or one of these people um but at the same time, he wasn't really an entertainer. He, he, was a, he was an artist and he was a kind of prophetic figure. You know, he was a person who lived his life kind of in this obsessive and very intense quest to, to produce a way, to be, almost, almost to become a way that in looking at him, people could see things about themselves that they weren't really prepared to see. So there's always—there's got to be, in anyone's reckoning or dealing with Baldwin, there should be a, a kind of, you know, dis- disturbance of a kind, a tension. And, you know, as as far as you want to take it, who knows how, how extreme that becomes. But I think, therefore, you know, his, the question of celebrity is usually a question of pleasure and entertainment. And Baldwin's was, was a complex variety, a very complex variety of that for all kinds of reasons.
0: I want you to really guide us through one of these disturbances in, a particular, in, the, in the field of race relations. And, and what does Baldwin mean to us in that particular field?
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's one of those things where, like all great artists or all great intellectuals, as you're saying, they're, they're, what they say to people changes over the eras. You know The way Baldwin spoke to the United States, whoever was, was paying attention to him in the 1950s, very different from the 60s, early 60s, late 60s, and as you said, it, it also different in the 70s and 80s with a, with a kind of, I don't know, decline in his popularity at least, uh, but I don't think of, of his importance. Um,
0: Why the transformation of the Baldwin from, say, the late 1940s and fifties to the Baldwin of not even just the fire next time, but we think about nineteen sixty one, and he writes the essay in the New York Times, a Negro essays the Negro mood Yeah. in the aftermath of the anti um, the protest at the UN after Patrice Lumumba, right. the prime minister of the Congo, his assassination. You have Black American protests, and Baldwin was supposed to be there, got held up at a cocktail party. Yeah, of course, right, right yes, right. yes. Um, Really, this this stinging denunciation of American imperialism in 1961. Why does Baldwin become such this prophetic figure, especially when he starts out being courted by sort of a a neoliberal yeah. um, um, literary community um, that that in, is in really in
1: the 1950s. Yes, this is very very kind of inward-looking, a private individualism, you know, as the basis for all human reality. He's
0: got the big critique of Richard Wright.
1: And and Richard Wright in the protest movement, you know, uh, he Baldwin was uh, um, covered the um, first conference of uh, Black and African writers in Paris mm-hmm. in fifty fifty six, and you know looking around at Aimé Césaire and uh, Senghor and Richard Wright, uh, many others, and 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 at their kind of very political aesthetics as writers, and he's just kind of thinking, yeah, this doesn't work for me, you know, I, this isn't literature as mm-hmm. such. I want to be a writer, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be a commentator. I don't want to be a pamphleteer, as he called uh, protest writers, mm-hmm. and so for him it was a it was a, a kind of a prolonged and kind of twisted and very complex transition into the, that kind of political overtly political role. Um,
0: and what leads to that? What
1: leads to that? Well, it, I want to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, part of what leads to it is you know, growing up in the ghetto like he did, he had his own fantasies about what success and what being an American might be like, you know, and, and he made it so he could experience that kind of success early in his career. His first novel did well, first book of essays did very well, early 50s. Giovanni's Room, you know, about about homoerotic life in mm-hmm. Paris came out in 56. Everyone told him not to do it. He did it anyway. And it was a big hit. So he was... He was actually becoming, you know, quite a literary success in the, in the image, in a certain kind of image of the day. At meanwhile, he was becoming more and more miserable the whole time, and he couldn't figure out why, and got to be so bad that, you know, he had a couple suicide attempts. He was really coming apart, literally, um, in a lethal kind of struggle with basically the experience of having been converted into an American. Mm. But at the time, he, you know, I don't think there was a very persuasive vocabulary for what all that meant. Mm-hmm. And certainly it wasn't persuasive to him. Mm-hmm. And um, in a crazy leap of I don't know what, he, in 1957, leaves Corsica, where he had been living for some months, and, and, and goes to the United States and immediately goes to visit the, the nascent sites of the freedom movement in the South, you know, uh, Charlotte, where integration was happening in the schools, this is September of 1957. This is exactly the moment when those schools are being integrated in Little Rock, Charlotte, other places. And he visits the people. He visits the families. He talks with the students. He talks with the activists, talks with the principals, talks with, you know, opponents of the freedom movement. And and I don't think, you know, he doesn't really understand much. He's, he'd never been in the American South before. He was a native New Yorker and then he went to France. So he's just, you know, taking all this in down there. And I think what he's, what he's, kind of absorbing there is an alternative to, like, American individual success in any color, that people down there are banded together in collective ways, in principled ways, which have results, you know, Um, and there's a power coming out of black people in the South in this movement that in one way kind of had always been there in rituals, in churches and so forth, but had now kind of entered a new phase.
0: Well, there's a performative aspect. It becomes sort of spectacular through these media images, and people want to come and see and bear witness, which is one of the things that James Baldwin talks about. And even now, when we think about Black Lives Matter and people like DeRay McKesson going to events in Ferguson and sort of live tweeting, it becomes a social movement when you want to go to Selma, you want to go to Ferguson, you want to go to Baltimore.
1: And Baldwin's first trip down there was pretty early on to all that. You know, this was... This was not national news. This was something people thought could kind of stay wherever it was going to stay, you know. But, but for him, it was a kind of life-changing in a way, a kind of life-saving event. It started in motion, this transformation that finally becomes the Baldwin that, that became so famous in, this, in the early 60s as a spokesman, as an overtly political thinker and actor, and also as a writer. Want, so so very stay, difficult.
0: I want to stay in the 1950s. I want you to talk to us about Baldwin and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Baldwin writes to King, I think it's 1959, He's, he, he wants to spend days with him. They eventually, it's an essay in Harper's, but I want you right. to talk about, and what's interesting about Baldwin, there's always a sense of skepticism, but there's also a sense of faith uh, in, in, in sort of the greater possibility of, of citizenship and racial justice but also skepticism that, you know, he talks about America and achieving our country, right. that we can achieve this sort of multiracial democracy that confronts racial slavery and structural racism and violence and lynching and rape and, and all these different things. So w- why does he seek out Martin Luther King Jr.? What kind of relationship do they have?
1: Uh, you know, Baldwin met King for the first time in 57, in, um, in September, I think, maybe late September, maybe early October, 1957, on that first trip. King was in Atlanta Staying in a motel, his family was still in Montgomery. He was still at Dexter Avenue in Montgomery, but he was in Atlanta working on his book. Uh, you know, uh, Stride Toward Freedom. And Baldwin had a meeting with him and immediately liked him very much, um, immediately struck him as a kind of younger brother of his. He liked to say that a lot. But, they, you know, they were both preacher's sons in a way. They had a certain thing in common with the church, but, of course, very different churches, Baldwin being a kind of a black Pentecostal family in you know, ghetto in Harlem and, and King's a, by then, middle-class family in Atlanta. But, you know, Baldwin sees in King... Immediately, although I don't think it took him a couple of years, like you say, it wasn't until a few years later that he wrote about it in Harper's. But he felt immediately that King was a man who, who had found, found a way to attach his own personal destiny to a collective vision of people's empowerment. And this was something that, that Baldwin was, you know, tragically and kind of almost lethally lacking at the time. And so he saw that happening. Totally had suspicions of preachers and clergy and how they manipulate people with spectacle and go home with the money and you know in their Cadillacs and you know he had seen all that stuff. He was in no way a person to be predisposed to enamor uh, a clergy, you know. But he he sensed something coming up coming around with King that was uh, that was distinct from the other preachers that he had known. Um, most of whom, of course, were Northerners, you know. Um, and uh, he met with him several times early on. And he said, at some point, he said in that Harper's piece, he says um, he writes that you know King was a kind of reluctant participant in this movement. He didn't come to Montgomery to lead a freedom movement. He came there to be a, a professional Baptist preacher, you know. Uh, and but the people there had already kind of prepared a movement. It was already happening. Mm-hmm. The structures were there. The basis was there. And he kind of found himself in the middle of it. And for whatever reason, whatever mix of talent and spirit he had. He became a kind of magnetic part of that thing and accepted the role that they had prepared for him to take. Mm -hmm. So he was, in a way, kind of answering a call that people had made. And that was something that that resonated very deeply with Baldwin. And I think from then on, he saw his life as a writer, as an artist, exactly in that way. Uh, Artist doesn't doesn't isn't it an introspective genius who who is in charge of their own brilliant worldview an artist is a person who puts his body in the midst of people in need and uses his talents to clarify that need to address that need to amplify that need and to you know do what what he can in that space and again that's something that was in pretty direct conflict with what literary careers are supposed to be mm-hmm. and the literary the machinery of literary success, then and now is, is something that doesn't tolerate that kind of agenda very well. Um, and so, yeah, that was a, that was a big deal. And, and I think, you know, if you look at his initial descriptions of King, and like I was just describing, you can find his descriptions later on of Baldwin talking about what an artist does. And they're, they're damn near verbatim.
0: They're almost identical. So that was big. I want to talk about Baldwin and Malcolm X in the Nation of Islam. Because right. one of the things that makes Baldwin really stand out, and I think when people look upon him in retrospect, um, even as the iconography of, of Malcolm and Martin has just grown in the last 50 years, really almost to the point where it's an industry and they're both right. brands. And Baldwin's is um, sort of catching up, lagging behind. Yeah. But the fact that Baldwin knew and, and considered both of them friends, and I think both of them would have considered him a friend. Um, I, I want to talk about Baldwin and Malcolm X in the Nation of Islam, certainly um, there are debates with Malcolm, friendly debates. Uh, in Fire Next Time, he talks about having dinner with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, um, um, which is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and, yeah and that
1: and, was in the summer of 61 when that dinner sum, happened in July of 61. Summer of 61. Yeah. In Chicago. And, um, yeah. and
0: he, he's debating Malcolm in 61, 62, 63. They're Various having these places. different mm-hmm. these debates. Um, what, what, um, what draws James Baldwin to... To Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, because when you when you listen to the when you read the writing, you sense both the skepticism, but also the real attraction, especially to sort of the clarifying truth, sometimes bone um, uh, rattling truths that they are articulating.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the, these relationships are so fascinating and complex. You know? um, but Baldwin was was very talented in. In avoiding kind of writing people off for simplistic reasons. He, and, and later on, you know, when, when King was dead and Baldwin kind of had this Malcolm X film on his mind and kind of in his hands. And he was working with Betty Shabazz pretty closely. And he was also built, trying to build bridges to the younger radicals, Stokely Carmichael among them, uh, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, uh, Baraka, Baraka. Um, and you know they weren't treating Baldwin very nicely in the late '60s at all. But and he knew that, and he resented it. But he also refused to kind of be split apart from them. George Jackson, Angela Davis, too. You know, he did work in relation to all these people at the time. So, so the same is true with King, King and Malcolm. You know, these were very different men from James Baldwin. He was obviously his life was was unthinkably different from either of those guys. Um, but he could see. You know, things that they were doing that, they were, that were very powerful, you know, and very attractive to him, frankly. You know, for Malcolm, you know, Baldwin could see that Malcolm could talk to people in the street in Harlem where he had grown up and in an urban America and black America in ways that were that people responded to very powerfully, but also that didn't that weren't manipulating people's pain in the way that he thought a lot of, you know, uh, kind of ghetto celebrity activists were and certainly the preachers were. And so um, at the same – so he could see that very clearly and I think Baldwin could see that Malcolm was able to do this in a very rare way and he certainly wasn't alone in seeing that. But I think he had a certain kind of perspective on it, which was pretty unique because of all the other stuff about him. What he, you know, what Baldwin couldn't tolerate, of course, was was the whole framing of the Nation of Islam imposed on Malcolm and that Malcolm embraced, obviously, that had saved him in many ways, and that he he went a long way along with before he, you know, he before he decided to break from it. Mm-hmm. So Baldwin couldn't tolerate that for a minute. You know, that was the worst of uh, the kind of believers' fervor that yeah. that was too much in the church, and 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 Nation of Islam was was just as bad or worse, you know. The, the racial theology was something else that Baldwin didn't really believe, obviously, and, and he didn't live that way, and he, he, didn't, he thought it was a kind of disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, in 63, in a Life magazine piece, um, there's a f- great photo of Baldwin outside the mosque in Durham, North Carolina, with the insignia on there, and he's, he's writing a note, mm-hmm. and it, underneath there's a caption in, where he says, uh, you know, the nation of Islam is good for one thing, it, it's great to scare white people. Other than that, it's just another racist organization, and the only place it can go is to disaster. Hmm. That's what he said. And I think that's, that's pretty close to what he felt about the nation of Islam as a theological and kind of commercial enterprise, insofar as he knew about the details of its commerce and so forth. But what But, he but, did he but Malcolm feel, was something very different, yeah, now, and I think he
0: knew that right away. Exactly, because I was going to say, yeah. one, one of the things I wanted to discuss was um, in the aftermath of Malcolm and Martin's death, um, he writes a terrific essay in Harper's Magazine, um, making the argument that by the time of their death, um, there was really virtually no difference um, between them. And yeah. So, in some ways, Baldwin, I think, is very prophetic in looking at Malcolm and Martin. as two um, radicals and revolutionaries who are constantly evolving over time. Uh, and and really leading us away from that American dream versus nightmare polarity that has really set in popular culture. yeah, you know, like yeah. we think of them as two different, not necessarily scholars and those people who are in 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 our field, right? But the public, the American popular and political culture sets up Malcolm as you know violence and sort of black rage and and Malcolm is this uh, Martin is this nonviolence and right. you know, the peace love, and The shield. Right. I, I, I use that metaphor, but. Um, right. what, what do we think about, what do you think about Baldwin sort of distilling the importance of of Malcolm and Martin?
1: Well, um, I think there's a lot there. There's a lot there that will last after the, the cliched stereotypes of who those men were fall away because the eras we're in now uh, don't need them anymore. I think Baldwin's insights is to, into what the importance of each and both of those men were. Um, we'll we'll still be there, you know, and be very meaningful. And I I think, you know, part of Baldwin's hesitation, part of the ways that he was critical of both King and Malcolm X had to do as much with the institutions they were a part of as with with their own, you know, visions uh, and voices. And Baldwin, again, you know, is is so important because he was non-institutionalized. He was able to somehow throw this career together in a way that, you know, he avoided allegiances to institutional orthodoxies, um, and so he was positioned in a way to see all this from a from a place kind of beyond the polarities, which created a lot of this tension between and, and within those those movements themselves. So um, his his perspective is his vantage point is very unique, and I think his perspective, for that reason, is is very valuable.
0: Yeah. When you think about Baldwin between, uh, no, between The Fire Next Time and No Name in the Street, I, w- I want to ask what, wh- what, what happens, um, why does his popularity diminish, you think? And not necessarily popularity within the black community or among radicals, because I think when you look at The Fire Next Time, um, it is you know, this huge bestseller and it's, you know, this is the year that Bobby Kennedy, the then attorney general, meets with Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry and Jerome Smith and some civil rights activists um, at, at Joseph Kennedy's apartment in New York, right. uh, May 24th, 1963. Right. And there's this big... Saturday. There's a Saturday. There's <laughs> this big sort of um, sort of confrontation argument that... Melee, yeah. Melee, that Baldwin sort of leaks to the New York Times right. the next two days. Right. And, and it's sort of saying that Bobby tried to use Baldwin as a conduit to, to really gauge the Negro mood, and um, that's one of the things I argue, that's as close as the Kennedys ever get to being in a room with Malcolm X when they're in that room, yeah. because all those folks are influenced by Malcolm X. Oh, yeah. Probably none more so than James Baldwin. Yeah. At that time, yeah. at that in that meeting, Baldwin, might have been Malcolm. And when we right, think, right. It was just, channeling him in a way. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. When yeah. we think just about six months later after the March on Washington, uh, Baldwin was supposed to have been a speaker. They tried to censor his speech. He refused to speak. Um, and Malcolm publicly um, really praises Baldwin <laughs> yeah. and says that, you know, Baldwin was supposed to speak, but they didn't let him speak because Baldwin is liable to say anything. Liable to say anything. And, exactly. and so that's the, that's the highest mark of respect right. from Malcolm right. X. Right. And so but, but from that high point of sixty three, what we see by No Name in the Street seventy one, um, and 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 he's talking about his experiences in both in the fifties, but also sixty eight. He's talking about Angela Davis. He's talking about Eldridge Cleaver. Yeah. He's talking about a young black man who he knew who was who was um, in trouble with the law. Um, 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 Tony Maynard. Tony Maynard. Uh-huh. So so what 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 because when I look at Baldwin by No Name in the Street, one of my favorite books, I really Not think too. of Baldwin. I think it's his best book. Baldwin is a full-blown black political revolutionary yeah. by that point, yeah. you know, and he's, he's um, you know, he's no longer a, a very young man. He's born in 1924. Oh, well, he's coming up on 50, he's by He's coming then. up on 50. So what, what, what happens?
1: Well, gosh, you know, that, that's such a fascinating decade. And, and part of what makes No Name in the Street the great, great book that it is, it's basically Baldwin's memoir— of his participation in the freedom movement, you know, from 63 and casting back. You know, he remembers back to the 50s when he first went to the South a little bit, on no Name the Street, even back to when he was a childhood a little bit. You know, Baldwin's always going all over the place. But for the most part, it's about what happened since 63. And first of all, what happened in 63 was that Baldwin wrote The Fire Next Time, published almost the whole thing in The New Yorker uh, in, in late in 1962, yeah. November. And it was a huge sensation, a huge hit. He got a contract immediately for a... a you know, he he made $7,000 for the piece in The New Yorker, which was like twice what he ever made in a year before in his life.
0: Letter from a region in my mind.
1: Because they... Um, the New Yorker had a column that was called a letter from, yeah. and then it was a person or something yeah. like that. And so they, they they put it in there like that, yeah. yeah. So that became The Fire Next Time, and and it launched him into – he was already a famous writer and a successful writer and a politically engaged writer, as you said, from the early 60s and mm-hmm. in, in a pretty public way. But um, in a way that's almost impossible to imagine today, the way that The New Yorker magazine was a concentrated kind of shop window for what literary culture, and to a certain extent kind of – Highbrow thinking, American culture was it was kind of one stop shopper's guide for what is really important and what is really you know what it's all about. And Baldwin was like you know the thing was like half the magazine. It was it was really long and huge. And so that and then the the book contract came was a lot more money. And then the 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 hardback copy of Fire Next Time sold off the shelves, went to multiple printings in a couple months. And so he was just in a whole other orbit than he had been before. And you know. He kind of, uh, they they basically, American popular literary culture, political culture, kind of set up a podium for him to come speak at, thinking maybe that in order to retain his success, now that he made it, he would, you know, be amenable to kind of telling the story they wanted told. What they didn't realize is he pretty much kind of engineered the whole thing, maybe not quite consciously, but nonetheless... The signs are there. They're very clear that he engineered the whole thing in order to once I get this podium, I'll be free to say, you know, do what Malcolm was saying I would do, you know, say kind of what needs to be said. And so, nonetheless, for for about, a you know, eight, nine months of 1963, all the way through the march, through his time with Kennedy, the thing that was in May, March in Washington is in August. It wasn't until September, middle of September 15th. Nineteen sixty-three, when the Birmingham or the, the, the Birmingham church bombing happened, four
0: girls are, are murdered.
1: Those, those girls are killed on Sunday, uh, Sunday school in that church, and then two young men were shot that same day in Birmingham mm. by, by white mobs. So it was six kids kids killed in Birmingham that day, and that was kind of the end of Baldwin's you know honeymoon yeah. as, as an American public intellectual. Um, something turned in a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, and and he among them. To say no, no, uh, you know the fire is coming. Mm-hmm. This is we're not going to turn this ship around.
0: And, and certainly, he becomes very publicly um, supportive of Stokely Carmichael, Angela Davis.
1: Any um, radical voice with any integrity, he's willing to at least listen to absolutely. and work with. Yeah. And, and
0: and he, in a way, he becomes punished by that same mainstream. Absolutely punished um, by the same lit-
1: literary kind of liberal elite that that that. That he had kind of romanced.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, he he turns and he starts telling them, "Look, yeah. you're not doing. You're saying one thing with your mouth, you're saying another thing with your feet."
0: And they're sort of publicly castigating each other because you think about Baldwin and whether it's um, people like um, the Dick Cavett show, William F. Buckley. Just, just you know, he he becomes sort of somebody who's castigating them. And and who who they sort of enjoy trying to refute. Yeah, it becomes as well. a theater of own. It becomes its a own. theater, you know. Mm-hmm. So it becomes James Baldwin sort of versus the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no
1: more fire next. You know, anybody who reads the last few pages of the Fire Next Time, it's this beautiful kind of aria-like oratory of possibility and brotherhood and love. And he's saying this is pretty much impossible, but we gotta we gotta try it anyway. You know, we're gonna go for it. But if you read closely, he's saying, like, you know, this is probably not going to happen, okay? Yeah. But it's a, it's a beautiful vision. It's a magnificent vision. And um, after, after September 63, you know, he pretty much put that vision uh, in those terms, in the trash can, and said, no, we've got to talk about what is happening and what people are about. And he turned right around on that podium and started talking to the people who had put him there, in unmistakable terms, you know, no more high Henry Jamesian rhetoric, no more flights of soaring oratory. Mm-hmm. It was kind of brass tacks. Um, and the people felt betrayed,
0: you know? What what are you doing? Well, white people felt That's betrayed. That's what I mean. But, yeah, yeah. The people who had put black, them up Black people really embraced him. them. I think one of the reasons why we're having this Baldwin Renaissance now is that a new generation is being introduced, especially when we think about Raul Peck's I Am Not Your Negro, which came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. And you you see those... those um, um, documentary film highlights, whether it's James Baldwin in '63 with the Negro and American Promise, and Kenneth Clark is interviewing him and that Malcolm. Was right X.
1: after that meeting with Kennedy, it was like right after, hours uh, yeah, after. I, I, right, Absolutely, yeah. after like uh, three scotches. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and, and, and um, <laughs> they were on camera. On interviews TV. Malcolm X. I, I I want us to, um, and we're we're coming to to a close. I want us to, w- w- you know, what does Baldwin say to us, to this generation? about the prospects and possibilities of um, racial justice, black citizenship, really the black citizenship that King wanted, the the struggle for black dignity that Malcolm wanted, but also um, the the struggle that people like Medgar Evers were waging as well. You know, Baldwin wanted to write a book about Medgar and Malcolm and Martin. That's what he was trying to do when he died. When he died. Uh So um, what does he tell us? What does he tell us about the struggle, the quest for, Racial justice, racial equality. Well, you know, I <laughs> in America and and you really, really globally.
1: Globally, um, you know, he said, "Freedom is the furnace that burns away illusion." Can and you repeat that? Baha'u'llah said famously that um, if we can liken, you know, if he said if we can liken life for a moment to a furnace, then freedom is the fire that burns away illusion. Mm. And you know, I think that's a great line. Mean but Baldwin's a great quote box author, man. He could give you a quote, he could give you a sample. Genius. Part of what he he's so popular for doing now, because he anybody can tweet a Baldwin thing, and there are thousands of them no, out no, there. He's a genius. So yeah. at that. So that was one of them. But but um but the idea that, you know, your your freedom is at once in the lives of other people and also in your hands, and none of it is you know, a peaceful kind of happy thing. Um, you're going to struggle, and and freedom is a dangerous possibility. Um, a real lived human life is a turbulent and risky endeavor, and so because too many times, globally and in domestic terms, in the United States, you know, people are are encouraged to gauge their level of freedom by the proximity of their lives to some fantasy about how some mythical white people were probably living at some point, the happy, clean and safe life in America. And Baldwin is just, you know, his vision is irreconcilable with that. You will not be a human being and be happy, clean and safe. The people who try the hardest to be that way become the worst monsters there are. Hmm. You know, that's where you get the Robinson and the Falwells and these people who Portray themselves in these saintly ways. These people are always, in Baldwin's vision, mm-hmm. yeah. the most monstrous, the well, most yeah, dangerous. The,
0: the disjunction between sort of the leave it to Beaver Americana right. of the nineteen fifties and what's happening. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, you know, and, and so he's trying to say at all times, look, don't be fooled into trying to live like the Beaver, fa- the Cleaver family, yes. the Beaver Cleaver family, not the other Cleaver family. Yeah, uh, that w- was a lie, and those people weren't living that life either. And the people who are most trapped are those that really think they were living that life and that life was scripted in their image therefore white folks and have no other inkling of any other way to live. You know, everybody else is trying to get into that box, but at least they have some experience living an actual life outside of that box. Uh, You know, woe to those born inside that thing who have no other idea. So, you know, but nonetheless, everybody's trying to make it. And the terms of making it are kind of predicated on that happy, clean, and safe image, mm-hmm. and so everyone's kind of at war with the discrepancy between our need to survive and succeed, but also our need to live in ways that are, are aren't reconcilable with the terms of that's of that success mm-hmm. and survival. Yeah. And you know, most writers and most you know cultural actors and 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 and, and personalities in our in our world they make a, a certain bargain with that dichotomy or whatever. Um, and, and Baldwin's best work is just unwilling to do it and irreducible to those terms. It makes it hard to talk about, frankly. you know.
0: And when you think about Baldwin, way before we had terms like white fragility, Baldwin is investigating and interrogating that in terms of one of the most acute um, interlocutors about whiteness and white supremacy. Yeah. And he's constantly saying that, those Americans who believe they are white are those who are bringing the whole country down. Yeah, because this is a myth; it's an illusion. Right, um, it's a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe yeah, yeah.
1: because it's a, it's a lie. You know, no one. He he he. You know, by the late '60s, when it's funny when Baldwin was going to do the Malcolm X film with Columbia. Studios in 68, he wanted Ilya Kazan to be the director. Okay, he's a Greek immigrant to the United States and, you know, quote unquote, white man. But uh, Baldwin's line for the, you know, he knew everybody was going to come at him about this. In 1968, a film about Malcolm X, you're going to have this, you know, white dude directing it. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll challenge anyone to prove to me he's white. And was saying, no one can prove they're white because it's a lie. Yeah. You know, th- th- there's nothing there other than a kind of myth, myth and wish um, but you can't produce the evidence mm-hmm. and so you know that that's that's a hard thing though for this country and people us all to kind of really swallow because if you think about whiteness cast in the image of the happy clean and safe life well, you know we all want that you know we all want to be feeling good we all want at least our children not to be imperiled you know um, and you know no one wants to walk around with dirty socks uh, so so Baldwin was very, very clear of the fact that this white business and the black business, it had a, a dimension of reality, but there was a fantastic, as he called it, a fantastic invention in it. And a lot of it was mytho- mythological. You know, that everybody in the United States wants to be white. You know, f- we, and there was a time, of course, when people shockingly would admit this stuff, you know, and there was all kinds of crazy pathologies to do with that. and And James Brown and, I'm black and I'm proud. And black pride solved a lot of those questions, which were important. But they also effaced the reality that's still true. You know, people want success, and success is offered in certain terms. And those terms code and chart very, very accurately onto like the structure of whiteness itself. And so, you know, you can't get too serious with Baldwin before the terms of success, the terms of happiness, the terms of cleanliness become ambiguous. And they kind of fall to each of us to communicate with each other about what those terms can mean. And that's what freedom is. And that's why it's the fire that burns away illusion. Because you can't, you can't construct a functional collective movement without um, that grounding in, in some passable human reality. Otherwise, you end up, like you said, you know, like the nation, an organization on its way to disaster. And Lord, he was pretty much right about that one.
0: You know. All right, we're going to leave it right there. We're going to end it right there. Uh, <laughs> professor Ed Pavlich talking about James Baldwin, uh, not just the American South, but James Baldwin and what he means uh, for, for all of us who are interested in struggles for social justice and racial justice in our own time. Um, thank you, Ed, for being here. Yeah. Uh, Ed Pavlich is a distinguished research professor of English and African-American studies at the University of Georgia. He's the author of many books, Uh, including Who Can Afford to Improvise? James Baldwin and Black Music, The Lyric and the Listeners, uh, and the recent novel, Another Kind of Madness. Um, Thank you. Thank you for such a stimulating conversation about James Baldwin. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter, at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.